millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, April 29th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the governor lays out his priorities for Mississippi's CARES Act relief funds and how the pandemic is affecting local dairy distribution. Then, after a Southern Remedy Health Minute... Out of out of trauma, out of pain, you want you need to have meaning. If not, if you don't have meaning, then you get stuck. How hospitals are considering the mental and emotional well-being of its frontline workers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi will soon receive more than a billion dollars from the Federal CARES Act to help the state recover from the coronavirus pandemic. During his daily press briefing yesterday, Governor Tate Reeves outlined his priorities. I want to be transparent about our thought process. There's been a lot of federal funds entrusted to governors across the country, and I want you to know our plans to make sure they help the Mississippians who need it the most. Here's what that looks like. We know that this virus could come back, and distance learning may become a more typical part of our education system. We also know that there are families without access to the tools that are necessary for distance learning. Not every kid has an iPad or a laptop to learn with. Too many families are sharing one outdated computer or maybe don't have one at all. They may not have Internet access to connect to class. I plan to utilize CARES Act funds to help fix that, and it will be a top priority. Support for teachers, schools, and especially parents will be a critical part of our recovery. We know that some small businesses have been hit harder than others. Grocery stores are doing okay. Barbers, salons, small restaurant owners, and more are watching their life's work go up in smoke because of unprecedented government rules. They never could have predicted that their business would face this pandemic. There is some federal help for small businesses, but I hope to use some of these funds to help them stay on their feet, keep their workers on their rolls, and weather this storm. Reeves says he also wants to allocate some of the CARES Act funding to help those out of work develop new skills, highlighting one of key goals from his inaugural speech. We know that there are tens of thousands of Mississippians who have lost their jobs as a result 
of COVID-19. We hope they will be able to get right back to work in their previous place of employment, but we know that won't be the case for every single Mississippian. If you find yourself in a position of extended unemployment as a result of this virus, we want you to return to the workforce. We also want you to earn even more money than you earned before. If we can get your pay up in the face of this pandemic, we want to do so. I plan to work to provide CARES Act funds for skills training for workers who have been displaced by the virus. I said it when I took office, and it's even more necessary now. We need to get average pay for Mississippians up. It has to be higher, and it must be one of our primary priorities. I want every Mississippian to earn more money. I want to help those workers who have carried the financial burden of the coronavirus response. The best way to do that is to help you get more tools to earn a higher wage. I believe we can do that, and I plan to u- utilize our CARES Act funds to do so. Reeves also intends to use CARES Act funding to help municipalities with unexpected costs and provide unemployment insurance relief to small business owners. While the governor steers the state towards reopening, data from the Department of Health presents some concerns for state health officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs. If we look at um, some other trends that are somewhat concerning, we are seeing an increased utilization of hospital capacity of uh, patients with coronavirus. If we look at uh, the number of hospital beds being occupied, we're at an all-time high of 429. And if we look at the number of ICU beds, um, we're not at a high, but we're at a, um, uh, a level that we haven't seen in about a week of 162 ICU beds occupied and 77 COVID patients on, on respiratory support or, or ventilators. Um, what does that mean? Um, it's, it's hard to know for sure. It could well be that um, our, our peak has passed and we're seeing more cases. That's a plausible scenario. But it's also plausible that we're going to have continuing increasing cases and increasing hospital utilization. This thing is not over. We need to continue to be careful. Certainly, we have flattened the curve, and we feel like we've maintained a pretty good hospital capacity to make sure that everybody in Mississippi can get the care they need. But please, now is not the time to let down our guard. The Mississippi Department of Health is continuing its aggressive testing strategy this week through additional one-day collection sites. Two sites will be available tomorrow, one in Hines County at Bolton Edwards Elementary School in Bolton, the other in LaFleur County at the Greenwood LaFleur County Civic Center. Anyone experiencing symptoms related to COVID-19 and feels they should be tested must first go through a free screening from a UMMC clinician through the Ceasefire Health UMMC triage app. There are also a number of drive-through testing sites being offered today by community health centers across the state. These sites include the Depot in Bay St. Louis, Starpoint Common Shopping Center in Indianola, as well as sites in Cleveland and Chula. To stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news in Mississippi, visit mpbonline.org slash coronavirus. Coming up, how the pandemic is affecting local dairy distribution. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Right now, mpbonline.org is your resource to stay up to date on the news about COVID-19. The coronavirus is a worldwide pandemic, and MPB is here to let you know how that affects Mississippi. mpbonline.org has an entire section dedicated to the coronavirus with links and updates from the Center for Disease Control and the Mississippi Department of Health. Visit our website right now, 
mpbonline.org to find out what you need to know. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Well, fears of a national meat shortage are on the rise due to a number of processing plants shutting down around the country. Dairy farmers in Mississippi are experiencing a different set of obstacles. With schools closed for the semester and restaurants still limited to carry out, the dairy distribution chain has been disrupted. Michael Ferguson owns and operates a dairy farm near Senatobia. He tells our Kobe Vance how the pandemic and the early panic buying has changed the dairy landscape. The whole uh, uh, dairy showcase was uh, upset. Uh, we got about 30 to 40 percent of our product nationwide that goes into schools and food service. And uh, naturally, when you cut those off, I know they still have some schools have a feeding program that's going on and we're trying to move some milk through there. And then you had that extra thing of a lot of panic buying. Uh, and people for a short a day or so there, there was not any milk on the shelves in certain spots, and people were just going uh, uh, basically berserk over that. Well, actually, you have to refocus and redistribute uh, milk nationwide, and all of those uh, that serve food service and, and um, schools had to be rearranged into retail, and that was a real nightmare uh i know that uh, your audience has probably seen a lot of the instances where they're they've had uh dumping of milk across the nation yet that's happened uh it still has happened but it's a distribution uh uh snafu it's not uh basically there's not that much dairy uh product that's that's you have to refocus from the food service and school size into retail and that's not really easily done so there was some, you only have so much processing capacity across the country, and it had to be basically retooled. You can't do that overnight. So uh, all of those factors led for a lot of uh, um, angst uh, from consumers and from, from us as dairy farmers. Yeah, we, we couldn't understand. We're pouring out milk, and some stores uh, are limiting purchases, and they've still got signs up. Uh, my local some of my local stores still have signs up, but I can assure the public there are plenty of dairy product out there. I, I, I don't think that uh, there will be uh, that type of situation again, but our markets are so disrupted, and I the, the farmers are really, really going to, to, to take a beating price-wise over the course of the next five, six months. What's the what's the major limiting factor from getting milk from your farm to grocery stores? There's not that big of a of a problem in in our area with the distribution part. They just had to catch up with what they were trying to do, uh, trying to get that extra product out there. And once that uh, bump was over with, um, the distribution part we have. Uh, uh, you've got a milk plant in Memphis. You've got a milk plant in Kosciuszko, and you've got a milk plant in uh, Hattiesburg. And most of those plants uh, serve, I would say, 90% of the state of Mississippi. So uh, the distribution uh, is shouldn't be that big of a problem going from this port on. Uh, it just had to be re, uh, redirected. Uh, those You had certain people that were serving restaurants and schools. Uh, maybe a different uh, 
group that's serving the retail, which is your Walmarts and your Kroger's and, and, and all of those. So, um, that, that's, uh, you know, I think those problems have been worked out. So the distribution of it, uh, I don't think is a big problem on a going forth basis. I also wanted to ask you about, um, as far as distributing, uh, do you have any, uh, do you distribute uh, beyond just Mississippi and beyond just the United States? Do your product go out of the country at all? When I grew up, I've been on a dairy farm my whole life, and uh, I'm a little bit advanced, let's put it that way. Uh, but uh, when I was a kid growing up, you know, you, you your markets were generally local. Now uh, markets are worldwide. Exports are a tremendous part of our overall picture. Now, in the southeast, we're in a very milk deficit market. The the milk and the products that are sold in the southeast, we only we being the southeast dairy farmers only supply uh, probably forty five to fifty percent of the actual milk that goes into those products. The rest comes from outside the region. It's it's a it's a situation where you are in a global market and and it, where, whereas uh, we shut the basically the the exports have been shut down. We were exporting fifteen percent of our product. Uh, and now we're maybe shipping out 3%. So there is going to be a problem to work through these stocks and to get things, the, the economy back to where we need to. And, uh, all of that is going to be a tremendous, tremendous strain on, on the dairy industry uh, as a whole. Michael Ferguson owns and operates Ferguson Farms near Senatobia. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, how hospitals are considering the mental and emotional well-being of its frontline workers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. As far as the treatment goes for this, there is certain... uh, way that medications are tested, even if the medications have been out there for a long period of time. The main reason for that, there's twofold reason. Number one, is this medication going to work? You may have instances where you give somebody a medication and they get better, but it may not be directly related to giving that medication because there's so many different variables in, particularly in this illness, There's just not enough data to say, okay, that medication worked. So what you have to do is you have to do a very controlled way of giving the medication to see if it's going to work. And then the other side of that is, is it going to be safe? Um, Even if it's safe in other situations, it may not be safe if you're treating coronavirus or if you're treating other medical conditions. So all of those processes do take time. Most of the time, this is, you know, at the very least a... Uh, medication that's been out there and used in other ways. Uh, We're looking at at least six to eight weeks uh, or maybe even a few months before you have the preliminary data. A lot of times uh, we may even have data longer than that that shows the long-term side effects of treating it with something like this. 
even after you stop the medication. Um, clinical trials are the, the way that you do that uh, with all of these medications. And certainly uh, there's a lot of those going on. Uh, we're uh, looking to participate here at UMMC in nine of those uh, with uh, either medications or uh, serum antibodies from, uh, from people who recovered from COVID and how to use the medication too. Not just in treating the patients that have COVID, but what about uh, treating people who are at high risk but don't yet have the virus? For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Michelle McAdoo. Join me along with Tara Wren for a special program, Mississippi Education Connection, a show dedicated to providing up-to-date educational resources for teachers, parents, guardians, and students. Each week, experts and guests will discuss how to educate Mississippi's youth throughout the coronavirus pandemic. That's Mississippi Education Connection, Friday mornings at 10 a.m., only on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The death of Dr. Lorna Breen, a top emergency room doctor at a heavily impacted Manhattan hospital, has made wide-reaching ripples across the country. Breen, who died by suicide last weekend, was on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis in America's largest hotspot. In the days before her death, she had described the scene to her father, recounting stories of victims who died before ever leaving the ambulances. Her story sheds light on the mental and emotional toll the crisis is having on primary care workers and the need for health systems to provide for their well-being. Dr. John Sawyer is a neuropsychologist and the medical director for professional staff experience for Ochsner Health in New Orleans. He shares how hospital administrations can care for their caretakers with our Michael Guidry. Before COVID, we had a very stressed out healthcare workforce and there was a lot um, in the news and in the literature about burnout uh, among nurses and doctors and there has been a lot of increasing work in our, at Oshner, um and nationally around how do you improve the well-being of your healthcare staff so that way they want to continue to work um, in healthcare and don't change out for some other job. Um, and with COVID, you just kind of multiply it times 10 in terms of the amount of stress and uncertainty, um, both when you're going to work and the various worries you have at work, in addition to all the stresses and uncertainties that you have at home. So there's this multiplying factor. Um, and what we um, did at Oshner and what other health systems are doing um, is thinking about kind of a three-part strategy. So one thing is making sure that you consider Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So what are people, what are most going to be um, stressful to them right now? So things like job security, compensation, child care, um, food, you know, things like that to make sure that people's basic needs and worries are met so they don't have to have those hanging over their head when they're coming into work. And then the second piece of this is, um, you know, in a crisis response, oftentimes everyone's running around like crazy, but we forget that people do need um, support. Um, But rather than just referring someone to, you know, a counselor, it's really important to go to them. Um, On critical care, you're, you're, working for 12 hours. And, you know, afterward, the last thing you want to do is try to figure out how you schedule appointment with behavioral health. So what we did is we did unit rounding. 
um, and we had a 24-7 call line or people where we they could always access us. The second part, you said it's being about being proactive and providing support that's needed beyond, you know, making sure basic needs are met so people aren't walking with that hanging over their head. Why is it important to uh, address those anxieties, those fears, as these healthcare workers are on the front line uh, dealing with these things? Most people are really resilient, but you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can to help uh, reduce the likelihood that someone has a longer-term psychiatric problem, um, and you want to make sure that they're functioning at their best on the unit. And so what we did was, you know, uh, process a lot with them about how they make meaning of their experience, because out of, out of trauma, out of pain, you, want, you need to have meaning. If not, if you don't have meaning, then you get stuck, right? And you get stuck looping over what you could have done, what you should have done, why this happened to you, and instead focusing on um, how what you're doing is the right thing to do and how what you're doing has had a lot of positive impact, um, making sure that people are able to, to think about um, why what they're doing has a lot of value and importance. So that way the story they're telling themselves is not one of only pain, but pain and something else, right? Not just pain, but pain and hope. So that way they can have different meanings besides just one narrative that they either tell themselves or that they hear, you know, in their mind. You know, I imagine these healthcare providers are, are dealing with a lot of pain and a lot of trauma. So what are some of the ways that the hospital systems and the people that are that are kind of navigating and directing the, the, the staff experience in these hospitals, what are some of the ways that they can help people make meaning of the trauma they're experiencing? Yeah, so the first is to, to normalize it. I really hope that leaders, um, unit leaders, uh, unit directors, medical directors um, are talking to staff about how they're experiencing the same thing. Because once people have this universality, you know, they all know that they're all experiencing this trauma, then it becomes less isolating and they can actually talk about it. Um, and then once they feel comfortable talking about it, um, it's important to have resources for people to access um, you know, uh, ways to ways to process it. So one might be something as simple as having a debrief um, with um, a mental health professional at the end of a shift or at the end of a week's worth of work. It could be something as simple as sending out positive messages via email or doing a mindfulness um, quick five-minute mindfulness exercise before or after a shift. Um, there are a lot of different resources that you can find um, online um, uh, or in your own kind of behavioral health departments that, that can be helpful. But the important thing is to talk about it and be proactive about providing resources. A lot of people have tried to show their appreciation for, for healthcare workers, especially in, in times like this. Outside of the hospital system, what are, what are some ways that people can and what are some of the ways that people from the outside express their appreciation for what's happening right now inside the, the health systems? So, you know, I'm from Mississippi and you're from Louisiana and there's nothing better than sending food. <laughs> and, um, and so that's one thing that we in the South do really well um, and people very much appreciate. So I think if someone has the resources um, and they can send, you know, uh, meals to staff, um, not just the daytime staff like lunch, but also the night shift staff um, for dinner um, is one really easy, concrete way. Another is having people uh, choral groups would come out and sing, but like at six feet apart. Um, and that was always um, inspiring to see um, putting up signs that 
kind of, as you know, neighbors are leaving to go to the hospital that they can see that have encouraging words. There are different ways to do that. And also wearing a mask. If everyone wears a mask um, and social distance does what they need to do, I think that's also a show, a, a show of appreciation because it means that we're committed to not overwhelming the healthcare system. You made national news this week that an emergency room director from a New York hospital died by suicide as partially as a result of, of the constant barrage of, of, of trauma, I guess, that she was experiencing. As a neuropsychologist, what can you say about the psychology of, of continuing to be steadfast in the way we conduct ourselves in this new normal and how important it is going forward? So we all, um, myself, everyone, is really struggling with the fact that this is going to be a year-long plus process. And I think once we accept that, um, the next thing is kind of doing two things. So one is making sure that you have your normal, um, is, or as much as you can, your normal routines in place that care for you, help you care for yourself. Um, but the second is also to start to kind of cognitively begin to reframe some opportunities that you are having um, post-COVID. So, for instance, it is tough to homeschool your kids or have them at home all the time, but it also means that you get to spend more time with them, right? It is tough that we're not able to go out to eat, but it does mean that maybe we can experiment with some different recipes at home. That's what I would hope that people are able to do over this over this next year so that way they can sustain the kind of important public health goals around social distancing and wearing masks and uh, and things like that to make sure that they don't get sick or that others don't get sick. Dr. John Sawyer is a neuropsychologist and the medical director for professional staff experience with Oshner Health in New Orleans. Thank you, Dr. Sawyer. Sure thing. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.